This is KJZZ, your news and information station on air, online, and on your phone. I'm Tiara Vian. Let's look now at this week's stories you don't want to miss. the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of January 15th, 2024. Keeping the Arizona Commerce Authority going is a priority for Governor Katie Hobbs, but a Republican-controlled panel voted against continuing the agency. From our politics desk, Cameron Sanchez reports. Republican Senator Jake Hoffman filed a bill to discontinue the agency altogether and chaired a legislative panel on Wednesday where Republicans voted to revise or consolidate the agency rather than continue it. Hoffman cited an unfavorable audit report as the reason. They did find that there is a systemic lack of process that has led to a big gaping hole where waste, fraud and abuse could be occurring. On Tuesday, the state attorney general said the authority violated the law by using state funds to host CEO forums. Those are events where the authority pays for powerful CEOs to visit Arizona, trying to entice them to do business here. Hoffman filed his bill to discontinue the agency before the opinion came out, but he still cited it as a reason not to continue the authority. The ACA is tasked with recruiting and growing business for the state. Cameron Sanchez, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Water Issues. Governor Katie Hobbs announced in June that the state would no longer approve some development projects in areas where groundwater is the only source. But in her State of the State address last week, Hobbs proposed a new pathway for groundwater-reliant communities to continue growing. Catherine Davis-Young has details. The governor's plan would impact communities like Buckeye and Queen Creek, which rely heavily on groundwater. Tom Bushotsky, director of the Arizona Department of Water Resources, says it will provide a workaround to guarantee a 100-year water supply. It would allow some groundwater to be used for some period of time to build homes, but it requires the acquisition and the eventual deployment of non-groundwater supplies. For example, communities could negotiate for new water supplies from the Colorado River Indian tribes or from other specially designated groundwater basins. Hobbs can implement the plan without legislative approval. Bashotsky says it probably wouldn't take effect until September or October. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And now for something a bit different from the show with an Arizona instrument maker. Here's co-host Mark Brody. And now it's time for the next installment of our series about the Sonoran Desert called Saguaroland. Sun and sand, sagebrush and tumbleweed, rolling mountains and giant cactus. From our armchair seat in the sky, we see Arizona's famous Valley of the Sun at Phoenix. Camelback Mountain is outlined on the horizon, And today we'll learn about using the desert to make music. Years ago, Kyle Burt was given a didgeridoo for Christmas. It's a long, thin wind instrument made out of wood with a mouthpiece and a bell. Burt had no idea how to play it, but had fallen in love with the sound. Unfortunately, his dog broke the didgeridoo, so Burt decided to try to figure out how to make them. He found out agave stalks can be used and actually have a really good sound. That was all more than two decades ago. Bert, who grew up in Tucson, is the owner of Desert Mountain Didgeridoos. 
He estimates he's made around 700 instruments in the 25 years he's been doing it. He came by the studios recently along with some didgeridoos, and when we sat down to chat, I asked what makes the agave stalk so good for this instrument. So, yeah, agave is interesting because it's, it's like bamboo. It, it's, it, um, you know, it's not a wood until it, it cures. And, and um, But a lot of times I, I, some of the research I've done it makes sense is a lot of tone woods that are, grow up in more a moisture environment like, like swamp, like swamp mm-hmm. ash and stuff is great for guitars. But agave, you know, has the, the, the middle with, you know, the pulque or the, and it has – and then it, when it dries over time and I wait about two years at least – um, but it, it hardens into – I mean it's a hardwood. You can't put your nail in it, which is the you know the definition of a hardwood. So it has this light structure, but it's a hardwood So it, and it has a taper to it. So as you've seen the big – you know, the agaves with the huge, you know, bottoms with all the leaves. Yeah. And it's – you know, related to the lily family, a succulent, not a cactus. So it shoots it up and then it dies. But yeah, all that um, – and then that basically when you pull those leaves off, that bell is, is part of the, you know, is also part of the wood. So they just tape, have great taper and the, and the resonance is incredible. What is your process for trying to find just the right stock? Because my understanding yeah. is you go out and you sort of scout them out, but you don't just yeah. take anything. No. So I'm really selective and really uh, environmentally, you know, conscious. I I make sure that the plant – well, so the plant dies when it shoots the stock. Right. Up. And so I wait till all the seeds are gone. Um, which is, you know, about a year and a half, and I make sure I shake before. And, and but I'm, I, I'm real selective because I, I, you know, I knock on them and see what the resonance is in each one. And I also, yeah, I get really the really old old ones, and they just have better sound. And they're usually those are the thicker ones that make it, and so they're a little bit have just a little bit richer sound to them. So, yeah, very selective. If I go out for a whole day, I might come back with, you know, five, five or six. Really? So, yeah, and it's a lot of – it's very strenuous work. So it's – it's you want to pick the right ones. Well, and how long does yeah. it take you to actually make them into the instruments once you have the stocks? So it's very much like um, ceramics. So it, you, they have all the different steps. So, I you know, I bring them home and I cut them to the length I want because I kind of think about what key I want. And so once you have the length and you bore them out, then you resin them and then you you uh, you do all the different steps. There's so many – I carve mouthpieces and stuff. So like ceramics, there's all those steps. Like if you added it up, it might be 15 to 20 hours. Hmm. But it might take three weeks. So you mentioned that there are different yeah. keys. Like yes. how do you yeah. – there are no valves. There are no, no. – like there's like a traditional – like many instruments, like you have yeah. – you know, you can cover a hole or you can press a valve down or something right. or a key yeah. to change the notes. But you don't have that. You you have a stock with a, right. a mouthpiece and an opening at the other end. Like yeah. how do you manipulate the key and how do you sort of manipulate how you play it? Yeah. So that's I think one really – like cool thing about it is that it's it's um, because it is one key. It, it's you. It's more about imagination and and like um, breathing, different rhythms. Um, so yeah, once you get the drone, you can kind of layer on top of it. You can in, in, you can add vocals. You can you know a lot of um, you know imitate birds or or just even singing with the didgeridoo. Um, anything that you add or anything you do that's a little bit different will come out differently in the at the end. So it's basically, yeah, there's no rules. Yeah. Is there a long tradition of people using agave stalks to make didgeridoos or is this something that, that's reasonably new? It's fairly new. I feel like um, it's probably in the past 30 years. Really? 35. Yeah. So it's 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 
you know, it's in, um, it's such an ancient instrument, but agave is relatively new to that. And then it's, now it's kind of known as one of the best woods in the world for it. So it's kind of sought after in a lot of different, you know, countries and stuff that don't have agave, obviously. Yeah, so what do they do? Yeah. Do they have to plant agaves in, in places where they're not native or where they're not necessarily supposed to grow? Well, I, you, a lot of, like, a lot of them I just send to places that, like, you know, Germany, I just sent several there, but it's because they can't. I mean, there's no way an agave could grow there. So it's more that they just like purchase instruments from far away. Like I'll send, I've sent many to the to Europe and to Japan and to different areas that don't have agaves. So, and that's one of the cool parts is that you think it's like this seed that started in the desert and now it's all the way over in Germany or or Switzerland or Japan and stuff. And that's a really cool part about making them. Yeah. So, can we hear one of these? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so the C is kind of is it's one of my favorite keys and one I've kept a lot of, and it's kind of it's a nice key because it's kind of in between key. Like there, there's so many. I mean, I have really high pitched ones to so low that it's it's. I mean, it's 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 almost like a different instrument at that point. But but C's I think one of the best keys for for a beginner and um and so yeah, it's just one that I and this one I made 25 years ago with and, and that was it was probably one of the my first 15 I ever made, and, and I kept it because I love the sound of it. I still love the sound of it. It's still one of the ones I play the most. All right, let's take a listen. So you mentioned a couple times how much you love the sound of the yeah. didgeridoo. What is it about the sound that that speaks to you so much? I think you know when I was when I was growing up, I heard it at the Fourth Avenue Street Fair in Tucson. I was in seventh grade, and I just remember just um, I was mesmerized by it. And I remember listening to the player for so long, and I just I, I remember telling my friends that I was going to play didgeridoo and banjo when I grew up, and. I think they were both like, "Well, that's a little." <laughs> you probably got some weird looks. Yeah, seventh grade. Yeah, but um, but yeah, I uh, it just felt it felt really like I don't know. It was it was it felt like nature. I, I was such a nature. I'm such a nature person, uh, and it just felt really. Uh, I don't know. It just resonated with who I was, and, and I just was, I always wanted to play it. It's interesting because you, you met and you mentioned how like it starts as a little seed in the desert, then yeah. it gets spread all yeah. over the world. In a sense, like you're kind of spreading a piece of the Sonoran Desert to all over the world. Yeah, I think that I I think about that a lot when I send them off, and, and just like how well how you know difficult it is to survive in the desert and going from a seed like of all the like you know the ones that they spread like only you know how many actually make it and then actually make it to flower again. And then and then spread their seeds and then die, and then turn to wood and then it's an instrument that goes all over. So it's like keeps living on in, in a different form, which I love to think about that as a flower, you know, becoming an instrument that like you know still lives on. So it's kind of cool to think about. Is there something about the sound of the didgeridoo that like evokes the desert for you? It you know I it it does feel like a desert. I don't know it it. Makes sense that like agave would sound so good because it does feel like the desert. I think like maybe that's one of the reasons that digital resonated with. I don't know. It just feels 
like wide open spaces are just like this haunt, a little bit of this haunting kind of like, yeah. I don't know, it's hard to describe, but yeah, it does. It reminds me of the desert. How long do you think you're going to keep doing this? You know, I guess till I can, can't do it anymore. I, I yeah. feel like uh, I'm still young at 46. So I, I've just, I feel like I still get all these ideas and I, um, I, I, I now kind of want to make, I don't know, like create different. I've been trying to work with some, I've been making some agave drums and um, just some different instrument, like I just have some more fun. I've been doing some kind of like fusion ones where I put two stocks together so they have different big bells and smaller mouthpieces. Huh. So just some, just keep experimenting. So I think I'll do it the rest of my life, or I know I will in some some aspect. I don't know it when I'm seventies, like how much more harvesting might be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, but um, yeah, woodworking in general is just so good for me. So I. I I'll be doing it as much as I can, until I can. All right. Kyle Bird, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Calling all wine lovers, First Press is back on February 17th at the beautiful grounds of Wrigley Mansion. Enjoy wines from Cove Mesa Vineyard, Page Spring Cellars, and Bernardus Winery. Support local public radio by purchasing your tickets now, sponsored by Clear Channel Outdoor. Tickets at firstpress.kjzz.org. In Fronteras News. A budget proposal released by Governor Katie Hobbs last week set aside more state money for projects along the border. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports on two border-focused programs. There's a $15 million fentanyl interdiction program called SAFE and another initiative called SECURE that would give $1 million to the state's Department of Homeland Security to respond to border issues. Yuma County Sheriff Leon Wilmot told state lawmakers at a special joint legislative session his department is responding to distress calls from migrants in the rugged desert borderland there. So we were able to utilize funding given to us by you for our helicopter, which we had no air asset. For many years in Yuma County, we relied on the Marine Corps search and rescue, but then the Marine Corps shut that down. Wilmot said his department used state funds from the former Border Strike Force for that effort. He said he'd like additional funding to go toward monitoring cross-border money laundering and other financial crimes. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Dams are coming down on rivers across the West, and many tribes are all for it. Here's Lauren Gilger. Dams were first built along many major rivers in the country to control the flow of water, to create reservoirs or generate electricity. But now, as the environmental and cultural impacts of many of those dams are coming to the fore, they are starting to come down. That's the story that's playing out on one river in northern California called the Klamath. And our next guest spent a long time reporting there, from the tribal concerns about the four dams along the river to how taking them down will bring salmon back to its shores. Deborah Utasia Kroll is Indigenous Affairs reporter for the Arizona Republic, and I spoke with her more about it all, beginning with more about the Klamath. The Klamath River, its official length is 263 miles from Upper Klamath Lake in the town eponymously named Klamath Falls. Uh, down through Northern California, the mouth of the river is at Requa or Rekhoi, mm-hmm. which literally means 
mouth of the creek in the Karuk language. Mm-hmm. So it's been dammed up for a long time, but those dams have come down. Tell us about why and sort of what led to this conversation. Well, the dams were originally constructed in the early 20th century as hydroelectric generators. That was the first time that Northern California, far Northern California, had actually had electric service. There are actually six dams on the Klamath, and and the big project right now is to take the four worst offenders down. Mm. As the years went by, it became apparent that these dams were preventing salmon and steelhead runs, which had economic, cultural, religious, and social implications all up and down the river because the the tribes have always depended upon salmon mm-hmm. um, for their livelihood, for their ceremonies, for their subsistence. Most of that region is extremely remote, and subsistence is a big part of the river, both for the native peoples who have lived there for thousands of years and the non-native people who've moved in. Fish are a big part of people's diets, and they're part of their culture. You know, there's part of the cultural transmission between parents and kids and grandparents and grandkids. And when you can't get out there and go fish and you can't get into the river because the toxins generated from the algae buildup at those four dams Mm. comes coursing down the river, it's it's too toxic for people to go in. It's too toxic for dogs to go in. And it's certainly too toxic for fish. So something had to be done. So the fish were dying, essentially? In 2002, there was a giant fish kill related to the Bureau of Reclamation cutting off river flows from those dams down. Mm. And they estimate anywhere between thirty to 70,000 fish died. Wow. And it was an ecological disaster. And so the tribes, the, the Yurok, the Hoopa, the Karuk, the Shastas, and farther up, they were the main drivers between bringing those dams down. How long has this been going on? Like, this is a long-term effort. That was 2002 you're yeah. talking about. When did they finally come down? The first dam came down this summer. Wow. So <laughs> decades. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, how, tell us about the people behind that effort and, and how they made this happen. It was a coalition led by tribes and their allies, you know, environmentalists, people who lived along the river whose livelihoods as fishing guides were dying, commercial salmon fishers on the Pacific Ocean because the the, the estimated salmon run of 500,000 had dwindled down to 40,000, mm-hmm. which meant that nobody was catching fish, nobody was making money, you know, mortgages went unpaid, homes were getting repossessed, you know, families were disintegrating because they weren't able to make a living off what the river provided. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what it's meant to them to be successful in this, to watch those dams come down. And, and have we seen any changes yet? I mean, it hasn't been long since the first one came down, as you said. The, the tribes are very, very, very thankful. They're grateful. They're, they're stoked to see the dams coming down. The first dam that, that came down, you can already see the, the channel reestablishing itself, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tribes know that this is only the start. And, you know, they've also been rehabilitating salmon spawning areas and side creeks up and down um, from where the dams are coming down, mm-hmm. down to the mouth. They think it might be decades. However, on the other hand, we've seen with the Elwood River 
dam situation in Washington. It was about 10 years before they started seeing salmon spawning and, and having enough to actually fish out of the river again. So it might not be might not be decades. It might be a decade. A decade. But a, a long time yeah. regardless, yeah, to rehabilitate these areas. So this is not the only place in the country where these kinds of conversations are happening, right? Like where there's talk of removing dams that have been there a really long time in many cases and that were sort of put there in theory to conserve water, to help the situation on these rivers, right? To to make sure that it was evenly spread out, all these things. There's hydropower involved. There's business and economics involved here. Tell us about the broader conversation about why people are thinking about taking dams down now. They're starting to see that dams are not the solution that everybody thought that they were, that they're actually a net negative on the larger environmental situations. Hmm. Like those dams, the four major dams on the Klamath, have literally affected the entire basin, which, by the way, is around the size of West Virginia. (laughs) Huge area, Yeah. yeah. So right now they're talking about removing dams on the Snake River, for a lot of the same reasons, to restore not just the salmon runs, but restore the entire ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we down here have heard rumblings about, you know, maybe removing Glen Canyon Dam. You know, we don't know if that's ever going to happen, but there's certainly people starting to think about maybe that one should come down. Mm-hmm. Maybe Boulder Dam should come down. I'm not sure that the likelihood of either of those happening anytime soon, mm-hmm. but there's more of a realization that. What happens at once one part of the river affects all the parts of the river. And I think it's a, a growing realization of how the environment and the lands and the waters are all connected to each other. And I think it's also a reflection that people are starting to listen to us indigenous peoples. Right. Yeah. Like these are tribal-led efforts, yeah. tribal-led conversations. And, and and these are things that people in tribes have been saying for a long time, it sounds like. Yeah. Why, what do you think is shifting now so that their voices are being heard? I think that it's not only environmentalists starting to realize this. Last week I was at the Colorado River Water Users Association Conference known as CRUA, which is the big gathering of all the water buffaloes, as mm-hmm. they call themselves, the big water managers of the basin. Now, I can't speak for all 1,700 people there because I didn't hear them all. I didn't hear anyone talking about climate denial They're all talking about climate change. They're all talking about the water is available, water is shrinking. What are we going to do? And the tribes are saying, well, let us in because we have solutions Mm -hmm. and we can work together. And I think there's a growing realization that there are are people who've been around for a long time who understand how things fit together. It's, It's the holistic, qualitative way of doing science as opposed to the Western models, which Mm -hmm. is quantitative, you know, things are listed and things are put in little rows. But when you put the two together, they're starting to see that that when you merge the quantitative and the qualitative, that you're getting a lot better picture of how the earth works Mm -hmm. and how best to sustain it. Because after all, if we sustain the earth, we sustain ourselves too. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Deborah Utasia Kroll, Indigenous Affairs Reporter for the Arizona Republic, joining us. Deb, thanks so much for coming in. As always, I appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you for having me. In education news, Governor Katie Hobbs wants to raise the pay of Arizona school staff by increasing the amount of money drawn from the state land trust. Here's Cameron Sanchez reporting again. 
Voters first approved Prop 123 in 2016. The measure distributes a fraction of the money from the state land trust, about 7%, to K-12 schools. But Prop 123 will expire in 2025 unless voters approve a continuation for another decade. Republican lawmakers first proposed in November a vote to renew Prop 123 as well as changes to funnel all money drawn from the state land trusts to classroom teachers. Hobbs's version of a Prop 123 renewal would instead boost pay for school support staff and teachers. The governor also proposes increasing the percentage drawn from the state land trust to roughly 9 percent. Cameron Sanchez, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in business news. Phoenix has launched a special court for low-level offenders experiencing homelessness. As Christina Estes reports, it's modeled after similar courts for veterans and people with mental illness. The goal is to provide long-term solutions. Once someone has been arrested, the city prosecutor will determine eligibility based on the level of their crime and housing status. David Ward with the Public Defender's Office says those who qualify and choose to participate will be sent to a special courtroom. There they will have contact with the navigators, they'll have contact with the defense attorneys, they'll also have contact with uh, Office of Homeless Solutions, whoever is going to be able to help them uh, navigate through whatever issue it is, whether it's behavioral health, mental health, or whatever that issue might be. The city council approved more than $2 million to create the court, which included adding 11 full-time positions and hiring 10 navigators to work directly with unsheltered people. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.